Greetings, everyone. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb. And you're about to listen to a history of the United States. Jamie does an amazing job, and lately he's been covering the different Native American tribes that lived in North America prior to European contact. But if you're looking for a more in-depth approach, why don't you check us out? We are Iroquois History and Legends. And some of you might be wondering, who are the Iroquois? Well, the Iroquois are a league of Native American nations that had more influence in swaying the America we know today than any other Native American people group. So if you want to see things from their perspective, we invite you to check us out. We are Iroquois History and Legends. Check us out at longhousepodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or listen to us on any podcasting app. And without further ado, enjoy the show, everybody. Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 72, Native Americans 12, Northeast Woodlands part 3, the Iroquois. In this episode we're going to continue our look through the various tribes by looking at the Iroquois in the Northeast, but I really have to emphasise how much of an overview it is that we're doing, and how much material there is out there. So I cannot recommend enough the Iroquois History and Legends podcast for some more in-detail analysis. In our last episode, we began covering the history of the Northeast Woodlands and took it up to one of the most advanced cultures found in pre-Columbian North America, Hopwellian culture. Centred on the Middle Mississippi and Illinois rivers, Hopwellian culture flourished at the centre of a continental trading network collecting resources from all over North America. After reaching its zenith in about the year 500, Hopwellian culture entered a decline phase, and it had disappeared by 700. This is where we left things, and this time out we'll turn towards what came next. About the year 700, as Hopwellian culture was disappearing, a Mississippian culture developed in the Mississippi Valley around Memphis and St. Louis, The main trait of Mississippian culture that we know of is the importance of agriculture to it, and indeed the culture was sparked by the arrival of agriculture in the area from the south, but this is taking us away from the northeast. Like with Mississippian culture, the northeast in this period was defined by the importance of agriculture and population growth, as the area began to take the shape it would as the Europeans arrived. In Wisconsin, the effigy mound culture appeared. Around the Great Lakes, the St. Lawrence Valley, and New England, the ancestors of the Siouan, Algonquian, and Iroquoian Tongs appeared. Funnily enough, it was long thought that the Iroquois were late arrivals in the northeast, appearing as invaders, but we are now aware of their long history in the region. We talked about the Point Peninsula culture of Ontario and New York last week. This was connected with the various Oaskold cultures of the area, and by the year 1200, this had developed enough that we can clearly recognise many Iroquoian features, such as the Longhouse. By this period, many of the features of American Indian life in the Northeast had become what they would be when the Europeans arrived, 
meaning that our documentation and our knowledge increases dramatically, and I can begin to talk about who these people were, rather than a series of cultures we sort of know bits about. An example of this is farming. Rather than saying agriculture was an important feature in the region, I can now say a variety of crops were grown, such as corn, squash, and beans, as well as that these were grown on garden plots very close to the settlements. These fields were cleared by cutting down the larger trees, burning the rest, and planting new crops between the stumps, otherwise known as slash and burn. This was true for most of the region, but in the very cold north of the region, agriculture didn't quite penetrate, and the diet instead resembled that of the subarctic, namely fishing and hunting. Hunting across the region was animals such as deer, bear, and waterfowl, as well as buffalo during specific seasons in the west of the region. The wampum, a type of bead made from seashell, which we've already discussed, was used as currency. In the east, villages were enclosed by stockades and were made up of a mixture of bark-covered rectangular longhouses and wigwams, both conical and dome-shaped. Some of their settlements grew quite large, particularly in the more northerly Iroquoian-speaking tribes. One town is believed to have had as many as 5,000 inhabitants. Clothing was made from animal skin. The common hairstyle for men was to pluck and shave their hair, aside from a strip of hair from the forehead to the back of the head. For this reason, the name of this particular hairstyle has taken on the name of Native American tribes, and is variously either called a Mohawk or a Mohican. Society was made up of tribes which were then broken down into clans and from there into families. This basic organisational system holds for even the most complex of the northeastern states, the League of the Five Iroquois Tribes of New York. According to legend, a Huron refugee named Deganwida and a follower, a Mohawk named Hiwatha, who might have been either a shaman or a chief, founded the League in roughly the year 1570. It was supposed to bring peace to the region based upon equality. The League placed a special emphasis on women in its organisation. The basic unit was the fireside, which was made up of a mother and her children. Each fireside was part of a Owachira, which was a group of related families which were related through their mothers. Multiple Owachiras could form a clan, and the clans formed a nation. The five nations then formed the League. Sovereignty was held by the Owachiras, and the women who headed them had great authority within the state. They named the male delegates who would represent them in councils. The greatest of these was a group of 50 sachems, a term which we might translate as peace chief, which formed the ruling council of the five nations. A sachem held their position on the council for life, but they could be deposed if found unsatisfactory by the matriarch who appointed him. There was another group of sachems called the Pine Tree Chiefs, who had the ability to speak at meetings. By law, the council had to meet every five years, but more commonly it would meet every summer at Onondagas, the principal town of the League. 
The sachems in the council didn't vote as individuals, but instead as nations, each with one vote. In order for the council to reach a decision, all five nations had to vote unanimously. The Five Nations was a highly sophisticated institution. It was, without a doubt, the most developed Indian confederation to emerge north of Mexico. It created a strong sense of unity among the various tribes, it ended various conflicts, and it would greatly influence the leaders of the British colonies with its ideas of democracy. But while all this is highly impressive, it must also be placed in context. The Five Nations was a macro-political structure, and had very little influence in the day-to-day -day life of the various tribes, and it was only in rare circumstances that it was ever able to unite the Five Nations against an external enemy. There were two types of warfare. There was a low-key version which comprised mostly of raiding. This was done for personal glory, and to take property. There was also a more serious version, which was done over hunting territory. Hunting was done through a mixture of bows, spears, and tomahawks. Torture of captive prisoners could be rather brutal. There existed some sense of diplomacy and embassies. Messengers were given a type of pipe, which has been given the name of Kalumet. This was essentially a passport of sorts, which could be passed from person to person, and smoked in peace ceremonies. The legend goes that the Five Nations waged war to bring the code of Deganwida and Hiwatha to the other tribes, but these wars were still going on when the Europeans arrived, and they were more commonly about raiding. The Five Nations will play a very important role in our narrative as we progress, particularly since the English and French were getting an increasingly steady foothold in the region. Religious life varied from tribe to tribe, but there was a generally a belief in some sort of supreme being, which was the most powerful of all the spirits. Tribes attempted to contact these spirits using shamans, who were often rather skilled magicians. The Iroquois had a priesthood made up of three men and three women, who supervised religious ceremonies. To generalise, they believed that all life was interconnected spiritually. Each individual had a orenda, a inner spiritual force, that resisted the powers of evil. Each person's orenda interconnected with the orendas of the firesides, the owatras, and even the whole league, this made it doubly painful whenever someone died. They were lost, but the whole nation would lose some of its spirit. This belief did have some interesting social effects, though. For example, prisoners were sometimes integrated into the tribes, so as to increase the power of the group's orenda. This is a rather inclusive attitude. That said, they did also torture captives brutally, in a manner which earned the Iroquois a dark reputation amongst its neighbours. Trade and commerce would be a highly important function of the tribes in this region for the foreseeable future. They were instrumental in the fur trade, but over time this function would gradually change. They were forced to adapt. Gradually, Europeans established themselves more and more in the region, 
so that by the War of 1812 they were considered unnecessary by the growing power of the newly founded United States of America. The tribes had lost all influence, all power, and all independence. They were forced to sign treaties removing them from their lands in the east and forcing them west of the Mississippi. Many of these tribes would end up in Oklahoma, as has been noted by some of you on Twitter who live in that particular area. A few would evade relocation and stay in the area of the upper Great Lakes, but they would live in extreme poverty. As is becoming clearer and clearer in each episode, the history of Native Americans is not a happy story. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then please consider signing up for membership. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. You can continue the conversation on social media. I'm on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and Twitter at historyjamie. You can send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks when we turn to the southeast.